0: Welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. My guest today is uh, Seth Shostak, the senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. Uh, Seth, welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. Yeah, thanks very much, Mike. Uh, it's great to have you here. And uh, I've, you know, I've been a fan, obviously, of SETI as any self-respecting nerd would be for a very, very long time. And SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intel- intelligence, I always think of that as being the telescopes pointing at the sky, you know, the radio telescopes. That's always been my my big impression of what it's been about. But of course, you're a lot more than that. And you kind, of, kind of recently, it seems like you've been uh, branching out more into kind of science education and things like that. And uh, SETI has kind of, what, three divisions, the, the Carl Sagan Center, which itself has several divisions, and then the Center for Education and the Center for Public Outreach. Can you kind of talk about how uh, the the goal of SETI and your involvement in SETI has kind of evolved over the last, uh, say, 10 years or so?
1: Well, to be honest, the SETI Institute was founded in uh, 1984, so that's a long time now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from the beginning, it was seen as sort of a three-legged stool, right? On the one hand, there was SETI. On the second hand, there was uh, what we call astrobiology. So that's looking for life but life in our own solar system, which <clears throat> presumably isn't going to be very intelligent. I mean, if you find, you know, microbes under the sands of Mars, you know, they they probably don't recite poetry to one another, or if they do, uh, they keep it fairly quiet. So uh, that's a second branch. But the third branch has always been education and outreach. In other words, to, to give something back to the public. So that's actually not so new. Uh, we do it today, but uh, we've always done it, if you will. Now, when it comes to the science... You know, back in the days when SETI was a NASA program, it was much, much, uh, a much larger project than today. Mm-hmm. Today, 95% of the research done here, uh, research as opposed to education and outreach, is in fact astrobiology.
0: Now, astrobiology, uh, you say that's mostly stuff within uh, our solar system, uh, but is there, is there an aspect of astrobiology where you look at uh, kind of the indications of biological life on, uh, say, exoplanets.
1: Yes, very definitely. Biological life. I don't know. That's That it sounds almost redundant to me, but yes. it, <laughs> it's not. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> but yes, there are people here at the Institute who work, in fact, well, did work, and now, well, they used to work for the Kepler project. That's a NASA project to find exoplanets, to find planets around other stars. And today, you know, that emphasis is being shifted away from discovering more planets, always, mm-hmm. always a nice thing to do, but to characterizing them. In other words, can you say anything about them other than, you know, their size or their their mass or their distance from their home star? So can you, for example, detect anything in their atmospheres? There was a press release today about a planet that has been found to have water vapor in its atmosphere. Mm-hmm. You could say maybe that's not so surprising, but it's very hard to do and the fact that you know, people can do that now, that, that's uh, very interesting.
0: Yeah, that's very impressive. And, of course, you know, water vapor in the atmosphere is uh, you know, a good indicator of possible habitable planet.
1: Well, that's uh, right, unless you don't like the humidity, yes. Yes, <laughs> for, for our life,
0: for our, for our purposes. Yeah, I was looking at your, uh, your, your, the, the SETI Institute page and the things on the front page, and the you know, interesting thing that came out was the, the fast radio bursts. And you've got kind of this, this teaser headline: "Fast radio burst from space have baffled scientists for years, but an explanation may come soon." So, what's actually coming down the pipeline with the the fast radio burst uh, research?
1: Well, that's an ar- yeah, that's an article I actually originally wrote for NBC's website, and uh, there was an announcement a couple of weeks ago by astronomers connected with the Chime radio telescope. Chime is a you know what is a very tortured acronym for Canadian hydrogen I, I don't know it, hmm. it was a, a radio telescope that was, it was built in Canada uh, it's about 30 35 miles north of the American border actually it's in the Canadian Rockies British Columbia and it's a very big thing so it's very sensitive and it was originally designed to look at faraway galaxies but it turns out it's pretty much perfect for discussing is it discussing discovering what are called fast radio bursts. And these are very brief. I mean, like an eye blink long Mm -hmm. Uh, radio screeches from the sky. Very mysterious. But Chime has been very successful in finding them, and they recently published a paper in which they found, you know, eight more of these that repeat. That's very important because you... things just go off once and you never see them again but if they repeat that means you can go back and study them so uh you know i think that we're going to figure out what these fast radio bursts are pretty soon uh so that's that's kind of an interesting story
0: i take it though you don't think that they are aliens you think it's going to be something kind of like Uh a collapsing stars or rotating something or other uh,
1: yeah yeah, collision something stars eating stuff black holes eating stuff i mean it, the, the tendency, certainly historically, has always been whenever you found something new, of course, if it's new, you don't usually understand it right away. It takes a couple of years to figure out what it is. But in those first couple of years, everybody will say, oh, it's aliens, right? Aliens <laughs> yeah, get the blame for everything. But it doesn't make much sense to have a fast radio burst in that direction three billion light years away and then another one over here two billion light years away and then back there a couple of billion light years away i mean how did these these civilizations if that's what you think it uh, they are you know that are separated by billions of light years actually arrange to all do the same kind of stupid thing just send out a little burp into the <laughs> into the ether and it doesn't make too much sense
0: yeah they'd be really spread out uh somebody i asked on twitter for Questions for people to ask you, and somebody brought up uh, the question of would they even use radios? Like these radio bursts might be you know, a symptom of something else, just like a side effect, but they might actually. Is there a possibility that they're using something else uh, to communicate well, that we're not looking at?
1: Yeah, in the case of the repeating fast radio bursts, of course, you look at them again, certainly with radio telescopes, but also with optical telescopes. Do you see a flash of light, for mm. example? Do you see anything else? Uh, anything else we can measure. And so far it's been the radio, but, you know, who knows, maybe with more observations, we'll find little flashes of light. That'll give you a clue to what it is. But, you know, radio is the kind of if you will, noise that many natural processes produce. I mean, you know, you're just sitting there, you're producing a little bit of radio noise, believe it or not, because your temperature is not zero, right? Mm So (laughs) everything does. But these little bursts of radio, it's very easy to make radio noise. Uh, It's not terribly hard to make a little flash of light, too. Uh, But as far as other stuff, well, what other stuff are we talking about? I mean, you know, neutrinos, particles of some sort, you might make that, but...
0: Yeah, and I suppose it's kind of a, almost an, an appeal to magic, really, that uh, it could be something that we just don't know about, and if well, we don't yes. know about it, why can we, how can we measure it? But, yeah, well, and, and
1: also, how can we discuss it? Indeed, if you don't yes. know about it, say, well, it's something we don't know. Well, then you're done with the conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, something we do know about, uh, something you wrote about on your uh, site, which I was kind of surprised to see on the front page, uh, was you wrote an article on Storming Area 51. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, obviously a very – it's something that starts out as a joke. Some guy said, like, we should all go to Area 51 and uh, release the aliens. Uh, so what what prompted you to write about that?
1: Well, NBC, again, they asked oh. me to write about it. Okay. <laughs> so I did. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, a, it's sort of a popular story, right? Uh, it was an internet meme, as you say, and it was started as a joke. And I don't know whether it ever progressed from being a joke to being something serious. You know, millions of people said they were keen on storming Area 51. I don't know how many of them actually will do so. to storm Area 51, to begin with, you're probably not going to get very far. The government, uh, you know, it's a secret government facility. They have fences. They don't want you storming it uh, because there are secrets there, not aliens. I don't think there are any aliens there. I knew people who worked there, but they didn't see any aliens. But there are. You know, military aircraft and the idea is to keep them secret, you don't know, want them being photographed and then, you know, put on the Internet so that the the enemy can can see these things. But also, uh, Area 51, I've, I've been to that area of the country. And, uh, you know, if you don't have a food truck nearby, you're going to find it a little uncomfy just to be there. It's probably going to be hot and uh, not much to eat yeah it, hopefully
0: nobody actually does go there because uh, it could, could could be bad if a lot of people did because they don 't really have the the resources to to handle it but it's it's kind of an interesting cultural phenomenon, and I think it, it kind of shows how how deep this kind of uh, aliens being held captive or whatever alien technology at area fifty one uh, meme is that is within within popular culture and this must be something yeah. that you, you, you you
1: must get this a lot. uh like well, people... was a CNN, CNN poll in 2002. I think it was a, toll, a poll done together with the Roper organization, and they found that 80% of the public that they asked uh, seemed to think that the government was hiding evidence of aliens. So if 80% believe that, then you're to get a lot of people that wanna, want somebody to go storm Area 51. Yeah. Yeah. Something
0: somebody else brought up on Twitter was uh, the Fermi paradox, uh, which you know, obviously you'll be familiar with, which is the, uh, you know, the, the idea that if there was alien life in the galaxy, then we should be able to see it, because the, just statistically, it would have spread out through the galaxy uh, by now, unless we're very, very unlucky. Uh, so the fact that we don't see alien life throughout the galaxy is perhaps a good indication that there isn't any. So what's your what's your personal take on the the Fermi paradox?
1: Well, I think the Fermi paradox is a great thing to bring up in a dinner conversation if it, mm. you know if you, you want to be invited to that dinner again maybe you shouldn't <laughs> it, it could get contentious I, I don't know but uh, but it, you know it's extrapolating from a, a very limited and local observation namely we don't see any aliens here so maybe there're no aliens anywhere. Right. I mean, that's like my, you know, walking out the door here and saying, hey, there are no tigers out in the parking lot here, which I, I bet are, is true. I doubt that there are any, but it doesn't mean that there are no tigers anywhere. It just means that, you know, you're not in a position to see them. Right. And uh, I feel the same way about the Fermi paradox to say that, well, we don't see any evidence of aliens anywhere. Well, how would you know? I mean, you might have picked up some radio signals. That's what we try to do. But if they're just building big societies on uh, nearby planets, you might have a very hard time seeing that, detecting that, particularly if they're a little bit cryptic and they don't broadcast strong signals into space. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think it says very much other than, uh, as I say, as an interesting topic at your next cocktail party.
0: Right. So you think, yeah, the the there might be lots of civilizations, but they're all kind of a bit insular in that they're just, you know, on their local solar systems and they're not really interested in uh, going out into space.
1: Well, I wouldn't even go that far. I mean, who's to say? All we know is that we don't see any obvious evidence. Mm. That doesn't say that they don't go into space, but they could go into space and you just might never know. I mean, how would you know? Uh, But, you know, being insular, they might be cryptic. They might be secretive because you don't know what's out there. This is the usual uh, argument against broadcasting deliberate signals. That's something else I don't really buy. But, you know, there are people like Stephen Hawking who said, don't, don't broadcast because you don't know what's out there. That's yeah. true. You don't know what's out there. But whatever's is out there uh, is, uh, you know, A, going to be far away. So that insulates you a little bit. But B, uh, you know, if they can do you any harm, if they could come here and do you harm, then they're way ahead of you technologically. And they can also pick up your TV signals. So, you know, that, that that's kind of a, a silly worry but it's also the case that it, you know it's sort of like asking well do the ants in my backyard know that i live you know only 20 feet away from them and i would say they probably don't mm-hmm. right they, they have their own fermi paradox there can't be any humans we don't see <laughs> them <laughs>
0: the uh you mentioned picking up tv signals and something I've, I've heard in the kind of ufo community is like some dispute about whether they could pick up tv signals like could we actually pick up uh you know Broadcasts that were meant for just, you know, within the planet, like satellite signals and things like that uh, from a solar system that's light years away.
1: Well, satellite signals, probably not. Satellites are very directed signals. And, you know, the power on a satellite, an orbiting satellite to send telemetry back is, you know, maybe it's 10 watts or something like that. And it's aimed down. So you're not likely to pick that up. But things you could pick up are things like radar. I don't know about their television. They may not have television broadcast anymore. I mean, television is only, well, it's less than a century old here. And we're already moving away from broadcast. So they may have done that a million years ago. I mean, you know. Uh, the idea that they have big television antennas belching mm-hmm. you know megawatts into space it might be very self-centered but one technology th- configured that they probably do have because it's useful uh, is radar radar and radar is a very strong signal you know f- from light years away it's not so strong but it de- well, depending on the radar but it's the kind of thing that in another 100 years of uh, technological progress here we would be able to pick up
0: Wow. So you'd actually be able to pick up something like, I guess, maybe even like weather radar uh, from another it's planet.
1: Weather. I mean, every airport has a radar.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. And of course, there are things for defense that are very powerful radars. Uh, but there also radars used to uh, determine the, the orbits of asteroids. That's something mm. you, and comets you, you really want to do that, even if you're Klingon. I mean, that, that, that's something you'll always be interested in. And those are very powerful radars.
0: That's true, and it's like uh, any sufficiently long-lived civilization would kind of have to have some kind of early warning signal uh, for...
1: Uh, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Yeah.
0: That... yeah. Uh, someone someone brought up what they said was a... what they thought was a, a contradiction uh, with the use of the Drake equation and the Fermi paradox. They say that the Drake equation says that there are yes, there's got to be lots of life throughout the galaxy because if, uh you multiply these numbers together and it comes up with a fairly high probability. But then you also say that uh, they won't be here because things are so far away. Do you see any conflict between, like, you know, using the Drake equation to say that there's lots of life within the galaxy and also saying that we wouldn't be able to see it?
1: Well, to begin with, the Drake equation doesn't say that there's lots of life in the galaxy. You can Depending on what terms you yeah. put in it, you can say that because to begin with it's not about life it's about intelligent life and in fact technologically competent life but you know I mean depending on the numbers you put in you can come out with the fact that we're totally alone or that the place is chock-a-block with intelligence so you know it's not that it makes a a strong prediction it just gives you a way to discuss the subject Uh, but you know again I don't think that the Fermi Paradox is terribly useful Right. Uh, again, you know, I mean, I didn't see any bears in my garden this morning. Doesn't tell me much about the prevalence of bears. So, I, you know, I, I don't get any information out of the Fermi paradox. Uh, the fact that we haven't detected anything is undoubtedly just the result of the fact that we're not very good at detecting stuff. Keep in mind, we've had radio for 100 years or something like that, right? Uh, you know, big optical telescopes we've had for less than 100 years. So, our ability to find, you know, sophisticated societies is pretty limited. I mean, it's better than what the Romans had, but it's not enormously better.
0: Yeah. Well, the Drake equation, uh, do you think it has any use at all? Uh, oh. as I, I've seen people use it as, like, justification for policy, like doing, doing research into certain things because the Drake equation saves a certain thing.
1: No, the terms in the Drake equation certainly lead to areas of interesting research. I mean, one of the terms is the fraction of planets that cook up life. All right, what is that pointing to? Well, how did life get started? Is it likely to have gotten started on any other worlds? That kind of thing. I mean, that's a, that's a very legitimate topic of astrobiology research, and there are plenty of people working on that, plenty, okay, because it's interesting. I mean, how did Earth develop life? It got, it got started very quickly on this planet. It sounds like it probably wasn't very hard, but you don't know until either you find it somewhere else, or you understand how it got started on Earth. And we still don't know how it got started on Earth. There are a lot of theories. But, uh, you know, we don't know for sure. But, you know, the terms of the Drake Equation, the Drake Equation is very valuable in the sense that any astronomy textbook you buy, any, you know, astronomy 101 course you take will cover the Drake Equation, because it is a great way to get into the topic's of astrobiology, and of course, SETI.
0: Yeah, yeah. The and the Drake equation it, that just uh, refers to our galaxy. Is that correct?
1: Well, I mean, you could. You should, one galaxy is the same as the next galaxy, pretty much. I mean, there there are categories of galaxies, but <clears throat> you know, there are two trillion galaxies in the visible universe, and at least half of them are sort of like the Milky Way. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, but I suppose all all of those galaxies are essentially. Uh, beyond what you might be researching in terms of alien life is, is there any theoretical way of people thinking that they might be able to detect anything that comes from another galaxy?
1: Well sure I mean, and it's been done. In fact, there have been observations, I I did some myself, of nearby galaxies, you point the radio telescope at a nearby galaxy, and if there's a very powerful transmitter there, or one that's for some reason aimed at our galaxy, you might pick it up. And the big advantage is, when you look at another galaxy, you know, you might be looking at many billions of stars, hundreds of billions of stars at once. So it's kind of a wholesale survey. Uh, of course galaxies are farther away and so the signals would have to be very powerful or they'd have to be aimed your way which you know is something that who knows what a society a million years more advanced than ours might want to do maybe you know sending a signal to another galaxy is a high school science fair project
0: yeah yeah that would be uh, (laughs) because the nearest galaxy is a very long way away in terms of uh, how long it would take the signal to get here so it would be
1: yeah, the yeah. nearest other galaxies are the Magellanic Clouds, and they're on the order of 100,000 light-years away.
0: Yeah. What's the, the closest star that uh, is, is interesting uh, that you know you think might be something uh, well,
1: in general? Well, the nearest, the nearest other star, Proxima Centauri, is known to have a planet. So yeah. uh planet that might even be inhabited. I mean, it might be habitable. No one knows if it's inhabited, of course. Almost every star has planets. So uh, the nearest star's of interest are the nearest stars.
0: Is that, are that they're just like uh, four or five light years away? Yeah. Yeah, so well, that's...
1: Well, uh, two, I think, to Proxima Centauri, yep.
0: And that's a great thing to to <laughs> fantasize about if you found something interesting on those stars, uh, there's a possibility of communication with uh, just... A-
1: oh, yeah. No, if you're willing to take the nearest million star systems, uh, then the average distance is, you know, roughly 150 light years. Uh, that, that means that communication is slow, but it's not impossibly slow.
0: Mm-hmm. But the idea of having some communication within your lifetime would be yep. uh, yeah, getting a but signal dozens, back in.
1: There are dozens of star systems that are close close enough for that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that would be. If you can get be, the fund, <laughs> yeah, that would be such an amazing thing to to happen in our lifetimes. Uh, but oh, an interesting uh, thing is the what's known as Tabby's star. Which was something that was in the news like a few years ago, uh, and it was the star that was giving out these kind of intermittent uh, signals, like it was it was in brightness, I believe, and people thought that it was uh, some kind of mega structure around the star. But that kind of faded away. Has that kind of been more or less resolved as to what uh, what it was?
1: Well, there are good indications that the problem was dust, actually, mm. um, <clears throat> but it, it it wasn't that it was brightening; it was dimming. It was dimming, you know, every couple of days, every couple of weeks. Yeah, so it would dim by, you know, like 20% occasionally. And that's an enormous amount of dimming. You know, that's not due to a planet getting in front of the star. That's something else. And then one suggestion made by Jason Wright, actually, at Penn State was, well, it could be some sort of half-completed Dyson sphere, some sort of alien megastructure. You know, some artificial construction that was blocking the light. But when astronomers looked at this star uh, and, and looked at the dimming uh, using a telescope that could determine what color the dimming was, it was reddish. And that's the signature of dust. Right. A lot of dust in a lot of solar systems. So most likely it was just clouds of dust. Probably not aliens.
0: Yeah, so that's what the redness is. Essentially, the same thing as a sunset. You know, just the light being filtered through the the atmosphere. Uh, you get that the exact same interference with the wavelengths as you would with dust. That's that's very interesting. That you can kind of figure that out after a while. Let's um, moving on to kind of UFOology. Uh, do you do you have a lot of interaction with people in the UFO community?
1: Well, I guess I do. I mean, I get phone calls or emails essentially every day from people. This is usually the general public, but they, you know, they want to report something they've seen or they have photos they have videos. Uh, I occasionally go to conferences where there are presentations from people in the UFO community, community, Hmm. such as AlienCon and stuff like that. So I, I know several of the people in this community and I certainly talk with them.
0: Do you enjoy doing that that type of thing? Is it something that you know, you like the kind of the science fiction aspect of it, or is it the, is it actual
1: science there that you uh,
0: you enjoy doing?
1: Well, uh, from my point of view, it's science fiction. Uh, from their point of view, it's science. Um, so yes, I enjoy talking to people about this. But on the other hand, when I sit there and listen to some of the presentations by some of these people, not not all. But by some of these people, they're you know they're very misleading the presentation, and uh, they ignore some you know well-known science and stuff like that. So that can be a little bit frustrating to me.
0: Yeah, what are the what are the types of mistakes that you see coming up over and over again?
1: Well, they will refer to phenomena that actually have a very obvious astronomical explanation that doesn't involve aliens, but they will insist that it's aliens, or they will simply say. A lot of them do what's called an argument from ignorance. Mm. Uh, The big thing these days seems to be disclosure, right? We're going to wait for disclosure. And a lot of people, you know, they'll take your money to help fund their efforts to promote disclosure. And as far as I can tell, disclosure means having the U.S. government come clean and say, well, we know about the aliens. And here they are stacked up at wherever, Area 51, wherever your favorite stack up location is. Uh, they don't seem to be pressuring, for example, the Belgian government to come clean, or uh, the Luxembourg government, or the Brazilians, or the Botswanans, or the, the Bolivians, or anybody else. It's just the U.S. government, because after all, the U.S. government has all the good evidence. Somehow, that doesn't even make sense. But you know, that kind of thing. And and I think that this is such a weak argument. Well, the only way we can prove that this is true is having the government tell us that it's true, right? Like, yeah. That 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 doesn't make any sense to me
0: it's essentially the argument for the uh, the uh, storm area 51 uh, meme is it's, it's, it's it, they're saying that there's aliens there and all we have to do is go and force the government to to tell them so they're, they're saying like just tell us but if there's nothing to tell then it is a meaningless
1: question in a way well and they wouldn't believe it i mean the government does say that they say yeah. there aren't the aliens at area 51 but nobody's going to believe that so it really doesn't resolve anything uh, unless they go in and look at every square inch of Area 51 and don't find any aliens. And even that wouldn't resolve anything. They would say, they knew we were coming, and so they've uh, moved all the aliens to uh, you know, Trenton, New Jersey or someplace. Yeah. yeah the, the U.S. government does have
0: some space um, operations that are, are kind of secret. They have their own little little space plane that uh, you know, flies in orbit, and they have all their secret spy satellites and things like that.
1: Of course. Of course. The, the, the government has secrets, the Defense Department has secrets. Yeah. But to to say because they have secrets they also have aliens, that's a very interesting bit of logic.
0: Yes, indeed. But it, I suppose it does leave the door open because there are there are secrets, and you don't know what the secrets are. But yeah, they're making the assumption that the uh, the secrets involve yeah. involve that's, aliens. That's quite right.
1: An argument yeah. from ignorance. Yeah. We yeah. don't know what what they have, so we'll assume they have aliens.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So are you familiar with uh, To the Stars Academy with Tom DeLong? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so they. they what do you think of these um, these three videos that they put out recently?
1: Well, I haven't seen too much of that. I mean, To the Stars Academy is not a research organization. They're a, a television production organization, best I could tell, reading their prospectus. So they're in the business of making TV shows. And, uh, you know, I mean, that that's fine, but it's not the research biz, right? So I, I assume that you're referring to their produced shows and not the video, the gun sight videos from the Navy.
0: No, I'm I'm referring to the gun sight videos. I'm wondering what your oh. take is on the the ones that they show, basically little black blobs either in the distance or moving very fast over the water, or there's one that rotates.
1: Right, Mike. How do you know they're moving fast?
0: They look like they're moving fast, but I know, I know that exactly. I, exactly, I,
1: <laughs> look like they're moving fast, but you know, a, a a bug two feet in front of my face when it flies past me looks like it's moving really fast. Yeah. Right. But yeah, uh, you you need to know the distance to know whether it's moving fast, Uh, that that, you know, people call me up all the time. I saw a UFO and it was moving faster than any aircraft we have. Well, how do you know? Well, actually, they don't know. They just say that. Uh, But in, in terms of the videos, yeah, those are infrared gun sight camera videos. And they are mysterious. There's no doubt about it. But they're certainly not conclusive either. These two blobs look like the according to a military pilot I talked to, he said they look like the. Uh, you know, the the exhaust of, of jet engines of a plane that's, a, you know, a mile or two in front of wherever these guys are. And uh, because it's an infrared camera, of course, they appear dark. I mean, they, they triggered the response in the camera. And then, of course, if that plane banks, then they seem to rotate a little bit. I mean, you know, you could explain it all that way. And if you can explain it all that way, then you ought to consider that because maybe it's something like that and not Klingons teasing the U.S. Navy particularly the videos on the east coast of the U.S., because the pilot said, well, they could see these things essentially every day. Well, if they can see them every day, what about all the, the pleasure boaters, you know, sailing around that part of the, the ocean? Why don't they see them? Uh, why don't our satellites see them? Not the Defense Department satellites. You can say, oh, those are all covered up. But there are plenty of other satellites and from other countries. Well, they don't seem to see them. Amateur astronomers never seem to see them. I mean, why is it that... You know, only the government can see them.
0: Yeah, and the commercial airline pilots, I think, would. Uh, For example, yeah,
1: th- they, they would say, "We're not going to fly in that part of the, uh, the, you know, the the country because, doggone it, there are these alien craft there, and they don't fly file a flight plan, so we're going to avoid that." They don't say that.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a very busy part of the country, obviously, with all the the uh, transatlantic traffic. Sure. Uh, the, over the northeast, yeah, I've done quite a bit of research into those those videos, and I think the the one that rotates, I, I don't think it's actually the the plane rotating. I think it's actually an optical thing, uh, with the the gimbal system on the the camera. Uh, when it rotates, it changes the optical path, and it actually makes the shape of the highlight of the glare rotate. How does- uh, it's it's something that you can you can actually demonstrate with uh, with with regular cameras uh, that because it's mounted f- facing forward. It's only got a rotational axis along the long forward axis and then an up and down axis, right. uh, which means that when it pans from left to right, it has this thing like a gimbal lock in the middle. If it's if it's panning and it's it's pointing down a bit, uh, it can't rotate around a vertical axis. It can only rotate around the forward axis and an up and down axis. So it has to combine these two rotations. And when it gets to the middle, it, it actually has to do uh, this this weird kind of translation to flip over and then rotate the other way. Uh, mm. And uh, this is actually something you can see in the patent for the the, the, the flare system that they used is it has a thing called a derotation mechanism that keeps the image upright, even though the optics are rotating. So you've got this thing where the it looks like the camera's not rotating but it actually is and then that causes the the glare to actually rotate and I think that is actually what's going on in this one that looks like it's rotating because it does rotate a bit 90 degrees which would be impossible for a you know for a regular plane.
1: Mhm that's interesting.
0: Yeah I could send you my my video explanation of that if you are interested. Um So yeah, you think that uh, To the Stars Academy is just uh, you know it's just a production company, and we see like lots of other TV shows, uh, like you know Unexplained or Strange Evidence and things like Discovery Channel shows. Do you think that's kind of
1: uh, a bad thing uh, for science? Um, Well, I mean. It's true that science literacy in the United States isn't at a very high level, particularly compared with Europe. I lived in Europe for 13 years, and my impression was that the the science literacy of the public was definitely better than in the U.S., that's for sure. Uh, but, you know... I, to say it hurts, I, it doesn't hurt. I mean, you know, how many people get hurt because they believe in UFOs, you know, that aliens are visiting Earth? The, the aliens are great about this because they never kill anybody. They don't solve any of our problems. They don't do anything, as far as I can tell, except, you know, promote these kind of television shows. I mean, there's that. But, you know, I don't think those hurt anybody either. I mean, there are some things in science where the public doesn't understand science that do hurt. I mean, you know, if, if you don't believe in climate change, that's going to hurt you because there's there's rather little doubt about climate change. And if you don't think that vaccines actually keep your kid from dying, uh, that's going to hurt. I mean, you know, we worked out the statistics here not too long ago, uh, and it turned out getting your you know, not getting your kid vaccinated was a million times more lethal than getting your kid vaccinated. Some people will die from vaccinations, not because of the You know, you know, the ingredients that they like to talk about. But, you know, just some people are going to be resistant to to uh, the vaccines and and, have a negative reaction in the same way that some people will die from aspirin. But, you know, it doesn't mean that aspirin is a bad thing. So, you know, in that case, I think that you have real harm uh, Mm -hmm. if you believe in the pseudoscience. But in the case of UFOs, if you want to believe it, I mean, hey, you know, I, I don't have any problem. I mean, if you want to believe in Santa Claus or angels or ghosts, I mean, it's roughly the same fraction of the population that believes in angels and ghosts as believe that we're being visited by UFOs. It's about a third. And, uh, you know, not too many people suffer uh, terrible effects because they believe in ghosts.
0: Yeah. It might even be a positive thing, I think, uh, just fostering an interest in science. Like, I know I was very interested in, uh, in UFOs as a child. Uh, yeah, I, and you know, I was more of a believer then. But then I you know, got more into reading about you know r- real science, popular science books, and you know, here I am now. So it's it's a good, it's almost like a good excuse to talk about science.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I've certainly gone into classrooms, and uh, it's a good hook to get them interested in what you're going to tell them about because they are interested. UFOs, you know, and indeed, when I was a, a 13 years old or whatever, I bought books about uh, UFOs and. Georgia damp and, and stuff like this, you know, with flying saucers in them and so forth, you're quite right.
0: Yeah, and I think that uh, it also applies to Flat Earth. Uh, I know you did a, a show on Flat Earth on, on Big Picture Science uh, recently. Uh, that, and that, I think, you know, you can you, you open it up with doing the, the, the classic experiment with the two sticks, uh, where you measure the angle of the sun and then again, you know, 800 miles to the north, and then you determine from that yeah, you know, that the Earth uh, appears to be curved because the, the angle is different. So it's like little science experiments you can do like that that come from things like, like essentially pseudoscience. It's almost like training people to investigate pseudoscientific claims is a good way of teaching them real science.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. I, I Again, I don't know that many people are hurt by the fact that they think the Earth is flat. I, I kind of wonder what what they be- believe when they fly from uh, New York to Tokyo, right, and uh, doggone it they they <laughs> the you know the the airlines seem to think the earth is curved, and it's better to fly a great circle route because of that. Uh, they don 't go in the straight line and all that kind of stuff, but you know it, i don 't think it kills anybody uh, you know so that's different than as I say some of these other cases where pseudoscience will lead you to make bad choices uh, mm-hmm. you know and, and those are mostly medical things
0: uh a question I got on Twitter, this is kind of a slightly, slightly silly, well, a very silly question, but it was, uh, how would SETI continue to get funded if it's disclosed that UFOs are real and that E.T. is visiting Earth? How do you respond to questions like that?
1: Yeah, well, uh, look, if E.T.s are visiting Earth, I'm going to go out and visit, uh, you know, investigate <laughs> the E.T.s. I mean, I'm sure that that's yeah. what, you know, uh, many people would do, and in fact, a, a British scientists once said to me. You know, Seth, if I thought there was a 1% chance anything in this UFO stuff was real, I would spend all my time working on it. Well, if you could somehow come across with with really good evidence, I mean, good observational evidence, you'd have tens of thousands of scientists working on it, right? I mean, the idea that the government could cover all that up is just silly. It's like my neighbor saying, I got the cure for cancer, but I'm going to keep it stacked up in my uh, spare bedroom and nobody's going to know. Not very interesting. But as soon as, you know, he comes across and publishes a paper or whatever, you're going to have many, many, many people looking into that.
0: Yeah, people sometimes, you know, I do like a bunch of UFO debunking type stuff online and people sometimes say, well, you know, what are you going to do when you're proved wrong and the, the you're proved that aliens are actually visiting the, the Earth and as if as if this is going to be a huge negative? And if this actually yeah. was proved, it would be the most amazing thing ever. And I would be like all over it. It would be amazing. You know, just well, that's there. right.
1: I think what they're really saying is you're going to feel bad when I'm right and you're wrong. I think that's what they're trying to
0: say. <laughs> yeah. But I would, I would happily take it. I would happily take being wrong. But uh, yeah, I'm not, I don't really see the evidence yet. Uh, another Twitter question was, uh, do you, uh, would you look into a, a genomic wow signal from prehistoric ET visitation? I guess this is the idea that there would be markers in uh, the human genome that indicated some kind of alien visitation a long time ago, like something that's something that's not natural in the genome. Is this something you've even thought about?
1: Well, a lot of people have thought about it, actually. And it was suggested at a conference I was at in Australia by Paul Davies. He's now at the Arizona State University, very clever physicist. And he said, you know... Uh, we should just put a grad student on it and just, I mean, we've sequenced the human genome now. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, look for, uh, look for, indeed, I don't know, mathematics or in any case, non-random stuff in there. There's all this junk DNA and maybe it's in there. Now, as far as I know, he hasn't found a grad student willing to do it yet. I, I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think that's a bad idea, but... To begin with, junk DNA is now considered not quite so junky. Uh, it, it does have some effects. And then there are all sorts of... There's a whole field of epigenetics, which has kind of reshaped our, our thinking about the, you know, the DNA and the genetics of uh, how that worked. But, I mean, it's still maybe not a bad idea, but I, I honestly think that if aliens had visited Earth a long time ago and they said, okay, Zork, uh, you know, we're going to leave, but who knows, 100 million years from now... Maybe uh, some intelligent species will arise, and we need to leave a calling card to let them know that we came to visit their planet. So what are your plans for doing that? Well, we could just leave a thumb drop here, you know, uh, buried in concrete. Oh, no, well, I tell you what, we could just put something in orbit. They'll find that eventually, right? No, no, no. Let's re-engineer some organisms here that are going to lead to those critters and put it into the DNA. Yeah, but Zork, DNA mutates all the time that's called evolution we're going to lose the message Ah, uh, well i mean mm-hmm. uh, yeah you know it just doesn't sound like to me the right way to do anything but
0: i suppose if someone wants to look into it then uh, they can go for it sure. because, like you said the data the data's there
1: i think it's a two-week project actually
0: yeah yeah they could probably just do some statistical analysis of the data or something like that i someone asked a question which I thought was kind of interesting, which is, the, is there changing debate about the anthropomorphic assumptions SETI makes about uh, ETI, extraterrestrial intelligence?
1: There's very little debate about it, I think. Uh, but you could have a debate about it. I mean, I, I don't know that we make any anthropomorphic uh, you know, uh, assumptions. Uh, that means that we assume that the aliens sort of look like humans. Mm-hmm. But where in the experiment do we do that? In a, nowhere. I mean, we're looking for signals, and, and, and the aliens that made the transmitters might look like, you know, you know, typewriters or bicycles or who knows what. Yeah. I mean, we make any anthropomorphic uh, assumptions there. We do, however, make the assumption that they're biological and that they're on a planet kind of like the Earth, right, with atmospheres and oceans and all that sort of thing. And that might be wrong. I mean, my own view is that most of the aliens have moved on to synthetic intelligence, and so they're, they're not restricted to Earth-like planets or planets of any sort. So, you know, aiming our antennas in the direction of star systems might be missing the boat. That, that could be.
0: What do you think of the, uh, the, the argument about the, uh, I guess it's the von Neumann machine uh, thing, where self-replicating robots would populate the galaxy? And this seems like to some people to be an inevitability and that the fact that it hasn't, hasn't happened indicates that we're the only uh, life form in the galaxy.
1: Yeah, this is another flavor of the Fermi paradox, of course. And it's that, well, you, what you'll do is you'll build self-replicating machines and then they'll get away from you and start, you know, consuming everything in the universe to make more machines. Of so, you know, uh, We have these kinds of machines here on Earth. They're called insects. And insects, you know, they're self-replicating and uh, they try and, you know, eat everything in sight, but they don't eat everything in sight in the end. I mean, you go up to any plant outside and you'll find that it's been nibbled away by insects, but they very seldom eat the whole plant, right? Why is that? Well, there's, you know, there's uh, competition, uh, they run out of the resources. I mean, there are all sorts of, if you will, natural breaks on having this uh, phenomenon run to if you will to completion to the point where it, it gets rid of everything so it could be that there are von neumann mach- machines but they just don't eat everything right we haven't seen them nearby uh, you know but again how would you know how would yeah. you know what experiment yeah. do you to prove that there are no such machines out there
0: yeah indeed yeah we can't uh, we can't see them and if they're not transmitting towards us then we wouldn't know yeah, yeah. UFO enthusiasts, like when they they talk about you, uh, you know, because you're, you're a fairly famous uh, scientist and you're well known within the UFO community. Uh, a lot of them kind of have a negative uh, assessment of you in that they feel that you are mocking them. Uh,
1: <laughs> I hope I don't do that, but maybe I do. I mean, I don't know. Of course, they're going to have a negative view of me because uh, I challenge what they say. So I'm not surprised by that. Sometimes they, I mean, I was reading something the other day uh, online and uh, about me, and it was an article that I'd written. It may have been Storm, no, I don't even remember which article it was, but it doesn't matter. Their comments were not, shall we say, gentle or friendly, hmm. and most of them were ad hominem attacks. They weren't arguing with what I was saying. They were just saying that I was a worthless person or worse than that. And I remember my wife came over and she said, why are you reading this stuff? <laughs> Which was a good question in a way. I mean, people, you know, people are going to hate, right? And, uh, but, they, but I find it, again, kind of, I guess it was about disclosure that I'd written. But I, I, I found it kind of disappointing that their best arguments were ad hominem attacks. That was, that's what it was. It wasn't because what I was saying was likely to have some merit. It was because as a hominid, I didn't have any merit.
0: Yes. Yeah, I get uh, I get that as well. Uh, people, uh, you know, I, I debunk things like conspiracy theories, uh, like, you know, more extreme ones like chemtrails and things like that. And people often say that uh, I must be a government shill and therefore they yeah, don't yeah, have yeah. to listen to any of my arguments.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, if you're a government shill, I mean, I get accused of that too. And I always figure, well, if, if that's true, I mean… Don't I get a bunch of checks? I mean, you know, aren't they going to pay me for being a shill? Yes. No. <laughs> that's they always they the, never uh, seem
0: to send the checks. I've never, never got a check. I've written one book, and that's uh, that's the only money I've ever made from debunking uh, this stuff. But it's very, very interesting. I, I still I love the idea of uh, researching uh, UFOs. Have you ever had any kind of UFO experience yourself? I mean, you would, would probably wouldn't think it's aliens, but some weird unexplained thing that you saw flying in the sky
1: well i did see something when i was driving down the what they call the 405 uh, better known to uh, cognoscenti as the san diego freeway in los angeles and there was something you know some spherical things sort of hovering there in the skies uh which was very puzzling at first but when i got a little closer uh, it turned out to be a blimp and i was seeing it mm, head on right see it head on it doesn't move very quickly uh so that was kind of amusing. And, uh, and I also saw something, where was it? Sierra Vista, Arizona. I went down there to give a talk uh, maybe a year ago, something like that. And uh, again, there was something hovering in the skies, and it was definitely not moving. And it was just, so it, wasn't, it didn't look like an aircraft, because an aircraft eventually will, will move one way or the other. It's coming right at you, but usually it makes a turn. Um, but it turned out that it was a tethered balloon uh, system to. With cameras on it to watch the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, the locals told me that it's always up there. <laughs> it's kind of, but yeah. for a while, It's mysterious.
0: Yeah, there's quite a few uh, balloon, new balloons up now. There's the uh, the Google Loon project, uh, which are these giant balloons that they're using to like bring Wi-Fi to other places, and I think that's going to yeah. lead to a lot of a lot of new sightings. And of course, weather balloons. Yeah, you know, people joke about weather balloons, like, oh, it's always a weather balloon, but a lot of sightings actually are weather balloons.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a whole laundry list of things that people mistake for alien craft and certainly balloons are among them. And not just weather balloons, just sometimes party balloons that get loose. And if you're only a mile from where the party was and suddenly you see these, you know, white dots in the sky moving in formation, uh, you know, it could be a little mysterious, but it could be party Mm -hmm. balloons.
0: You know, from your perspective, what advice would you give a UFO enthusiast who is convinced that the government is withholding information? How do you think they should proceed with their belief?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, they could support some of these organizations that are, you know, arguing for disclosure, but that presumes that there's something to disclose, and B, that uh, if there is, that they will disclose it. I, I think that that's kind of an unproductive way to proceed although it is the number one uh you know i don't know i guess you call it the number one tactic of choice but i would say if we're really being visited you know the evidence isn't all going to be collected by the u.s government the u.s government isn't everywhere right i mean if if aliens land in my backyard the government isn't going to know about that unless i tell them right so there's plenty of room for them to, in fact, uh, do their own experiments maybe and and, and, and you know, go to places where people routinely cite things and, and see if there's anything going on or just look at, uh, I don't know, I mean, there, there are plenty of weather maps that are, you know, taken by satellites and some of them are fairly high resolution. I mean, you know, I, I would just say instead of throwing up your hands and saying I'm waiting for the government to tell me what's going on, you know, they, they could wait till the cows come home. Uh, it's better to to actually figure out, well, how can we, in fact, look into this? It's hard because they don't have the resources. The government has tried at least four or five times with various projects, you know, the most recent being this thing uh, that, uh, you know, $22 million was spent mostly in Las Vegas uh, mm. to to investigate what were called uh, anomala, uh, anomalous aerial phenomena Kind of kind of thing, uh, you know that kind of thing, and they they have access to all sorts of data that you might not have access to, but it's usually it's not secret data. I mean, I, I don't know what to do. I mean, you can certainly there are ten thousand sightings every year. You could just help MUFON and look into the best ones.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's certainly uh, yeah <laughs> an infinite amount of, uh, of UFO sightings. Like you see UFOs every day, uh, but I just assume that they're actually planes. I can't actually identify them—the little white dots just far away in the sky.
1: Well, Uh, when people call me up and say that I've got, you know, they usually start their conversation by saying, "I have some important information for you," and then I know exactly what they're going to talk about. Um, But you know, uh, I don't think any of these people are committing a hoax. It's not that they're saying that and they're making something up; they've seen something. And I will ask, do you have any photos or videos? I mean, we don't investigate UFOs here; that's not our job. But uh, I, I do have a fairly long history in photography, videography, mm-hmm. films, and, um, and and maybe half of them do have photos of some sort or other. And I say, send them to me. Now I'll, I'll give you my opinion anyhow for what that's worth. And uh, maybe half of the photos they send, I I I think I know what it is. You know, internal reflection in a zoom lens, or you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, so the autofocus in a cell phone, that kind of thing. And I'll, I'll give them my opinion. Uh, it doesn't make them happier, though, I've got to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sometimes it does. I, I get quite a few of those as well. We have a forum on, on my Metabunk forum called Sky Identify, which is for identifying things in the sky. And we do a lot of that type of thing. People post photos of uh, you know, little white blobs in the sky, and then we say that's a reflection or whatever. And then we kind of explain why, why it is. Or we, sometimes you can't figure out what things are because there's right. simply not, not enough information in the photograph. Right yeah uh,
1: yeah yeah that's true it's it's very seldom that people will come back and say oh okay thanks you know, somehow that doesn't seem to be the common reaction but occasionally
0: yeah yeah uh right this has been a great conversation is there anything else that you want to uh like touch on before we, we close out
1: no i don't think so i mean uh, you know tell people to keep watching this guys look uh, the universe is uh it's vast it's big, really big, as Douglas Adams said. And uh, as a consequence, I'm sure there are plenty of aliens out there. There are a trillion planets in the, in the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, I don't think all of them are sterile. So I, I do think they're out there. I, I would argue that they're not visiting Earth, but if you feel strongly otherwise, uh, you know, work on proving that to me.
0: All right. Great. Thank you very much.